like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee, and I'm trying it again with Richard Cohn. Hi, Heather. I'm another early childhood nerd, too. Yay. Happy to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so Richard and I tried to record together a, a while ago, and I had some issues with my my equipment, so it was just me talking to nobody. Um, so we're going to try it again. I don't know if we can truly recreate the magic of that episode because we started talking about pedagogy of the oppressed and we asked poop. Right. <laughs> It was brilliant and life-changing, and now it's lost, <laughs> it's lost in the sands of time. It's lost forever, so yes. um, that'll that'll probably show up in both of our biographies, that lost, <laughs> that lost episode. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, Richard, do you want to tell anybody, everybody anything about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so I've been uh, proudly an early childhood professional for 33-plus years, um, just done a whole lot of different things, was a infant, toddler, preschool, kindergarten teacher, center director, uh, big deal leader in Washington, D.C. <laughs> stuff. Um, and now I'm thrilled to be teaching, back to teaching community college and uh, preparing young people for this wonderful profession. And then when I'm not doing that, I'm running around the world giving uh, a mass to give keynote addresses at early childhood conferences and... Uh, I've got online courses and family sing-alongs and sell early oh. childhood t-shirts and on and on and on. Awesome. And uh, if they want to find you on Facebook, it's Zen and the Art of Early Childhood, right? Yep. That's on Facebook, saying. Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you could go to richardcohen.com and there's links to all that stuff I just mentioned. Cool. Um, I had a friend who just went and saw you maybe around Chicago. That's correct. Yeah, she was so excited. She was texting you. She was texting me about how great it was. So I, I talked to two hundred people about you. What? <laughs> no, you didn't. Well, we were talking about um, uh, technology or something, mm -hmm. and you had just posted uh, on Facebook 
uh, about how you were recording yourself on YouTube videos of the songs you sing. Yeah. Um, so that because parents wanted to know, wanted to be able to sing the songs with their kids back at home. Uh-huh. And I was telling the audience that I thought that was just brilliant. And uh-huh. many people were scribbling down those notes. So oh. maybe you've created a trend. Yeah, maybe. They haven't actually been released yet. I have to remake them all because there was a cleavage situation. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why God made pixelation. Oh, well, I thought maybe I'd just redo them. But anyway, um, yeah, so we, you know, and because our, our children, the children in our program have speech and language delays, mm. so it's even harder sometimes for the folks at home to know what they're singing. So what was that happening is people were, parents were messaging me on Facebook or sending me text videos of the kids trying to sing and saying, what is this? And I'd I... send a video back of what they were trying to sing. I love that you did that. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> well, it was fun. And uh, and it's out there. It, it will be out there again this week. Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about a quote that has been really meaningful for me for all of my career. Uh, I think I first stumbled and I don't how how I stumbled across it before the world of Facebook. I'm not really sure. Um, I, someone probably quoted it in a book or something. But anyway, so it's and how did we decide this is his name is pronounced? You say it. Uh, I, I'm going with Chaim Dinat. Okay, perfect. No clue if that's correct. I, that sounds good. That sounds right. So here's the quote. I've come to the frightening conclusion that I'm the decisive element in the classroom. It's my daily mood that makes the weather. As a teacher, I possess a tremendous power to make a child's miserable, child's life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a child humanized or dehumanized. A little choked yeah. up trying to read it. I think it's one of the most powerful things I've read um, in, in all of the things I've read about working with young children. And I was so glad to see it popping up again because it sort of gets into the back of my mind. Um, but I think this came up somewhere on Facebook and we both commented that it was something that we felt strongly about. So, yes. So I came across this quote, um, decades back when I was at Pacific Oaks college and one of my professors, uh, shared it with us, um, because we were, um, exploring the concept of power and autonomy, which we know is the primary motivator of our little audiences. (laughs) And, um, and this quote has resonated with me ever since, and I've shared it time and time again. Um, what you just read was a bit abridged from um, the version that I know of. Uh-huh. Um, and in fact, when I looked it up to print it out for this interview, there was even another sentence at the end that I had never even heard of before uh-huh. um, that kind of blew me away. But in the version that I've shared with people, it says... Um, it's my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. Mm-hmm. And so what what I usually ask audiences is, so who creates climate and who makes weather? And they kind of scratch their heads and someone will at some point be brave enough to say, well, God. <laughs> um, and I'll say, yes, um, if you so believe in God, that's exactly who I think he's talking about. And he's saying, we, that's how powerful we are. Mm-hmm. We are godlike in the lives of other people's children. Um, and that to me, the, what this did for me as a young teacher and what I try to impart to people is that um, for me, the difference between a good 
early childhood educator and a great one um, is being frightened by the power you have over mm -hmm. other people's children. And until you get really scared by how much power you have, um, you haven't really fully gotten there yet um, as an early childhood professional. Yeah, that's really powerful. I just had to write that down. But what what where my mind went when you said that, you know, being when you mentioned being frightened by the power we have. Um, and this is something that Lisa Murphy and I have talked about a lot in terms of power. There are so many people in our field that I feel like are delighted by that power. Mm. And that's like the reason that they're here is because they for whatever reason, they just really like bossing little people around. <laughs> right. And it breaks my heart. Um, so, so what you're talking about is a complete flip and, and requires so much self-awareness and honesty. Well, you know, so I, I think our field encompasses, right, a diversity of humanity. Sure. So I've worked in Ferguson, Missouri, now in the Hartford, Connecticut area. Uh, and so the people that I've spent my, most of my career with are deeply disempowered. Mm. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, and I'm going to venture to guess probably hurt by people in their lives, probably particularly men. And so um, it feels safe to be around children. And either um, that sense of power and sort of, like you say, bossing the children around, or the full other end of the spectrum. Or, um, I don't know. I'm going to be their friend, and mm. we're just going to play all day, um, and I'm not going to assert myself. Um, and every sort of area, level of power on the spectrum in between, we see all over this field. Um, and, and I think that, you know, the other thing that I learned early on that, that I don't think anyone officially taught me, I just figured it out, I think, mm -hmm. which is... Um, to be a great professional in this field, you have to do your own personal work. Um, whether you're there because you want to control children um, or you're there because you're scared, uh, you know, and you feel deeply disempowered, either way, um, we have to find, you know, kind of what Erickson says is that balance in the center. Mm -hmm. And um, we each have to do our work, whatever that is, personally, in order to be great professionally. Mm -hmm. And boy, that's hard. I, there was another quote that I, sh that I shared on my, um, probably my personal Facebook page as I'm thinking about the person who responded to it. It was probably my personal Facebook page and it wasn't this, but it was along those same lines that, you know, children deserve, um, our best and we're the ones who can kind of set up what kind of feeling they're going to have. You know, I'm, of course I can't remember exactly what it was, but I got, I got a message from from a friend who had been deeply hurt and and was working with young children. And the response was, um, you know, I went into the classroom with this laundry list of tragedy and it, and I couldn't be the best for children. Right. And and so I guess we're not we're not saying that you can't that you're not also human that you don't also have pain that you bring into a classroom. But I do think we have a heightened level of responsibility because of the work that we've chosen to do. If that, if that makes sense. It, it does. Um, so that triggers a couple of thoughts for me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one, and of course, both of them have just had, um, <laughs> the older I get, the more that happens, but uh -huh. they tend to come back. Sure. Um, one, um, 
oh my gosh, they are just gone. Well, um, well, go ahead. It'll so, come back to me. And then yeah, I'll interrupt so you I guess day. I just, I don't have, I, I, I feel so strongly about the things that, that this quote is saying, you know, that especially the idea of humanizing or dehumanizing children. Yes. Um, and that I think sometimes I go, sometimes I feel like I'm going to, and maybe even dehumanizing the teacher because of the expectations I have. Right. Uh, for them to always be in this place that the quote is talking about, setting that tone and doing it well. And, and I, I guess I struggle to find the middle ground in that, or is there a middle ground and should we, we just stop worrying about um, the teacher's bad day and what kind of uh, what kind of allowance kind of we mood. can make for that? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, thank you. That did remind me of <laughs> oh, my good. Not quick. Okay. Um, <laughs> one. Um, um, so I think in order to humanize or dehumanize other people's children. Um, we have to bring our own humanity to work ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, which is why we have to work on our personal stuff in order to be great professionals. I would be really concerned, you know, there are a lot of interest- industries in this world that are replaced now by robots, but um, I would be very concerned if that ever happened in early childhood education because we need to bring our humanity to work. We need to show children our fallibilities um, and we need to be able to show them how to acknowledge them apologize for them, forgive ourselves for them, all those kinds of things. Um, that's, that's part of saying, hey, welcome to this planet. Here's what, means, <laughs> here's what it means to be a human being. No, I know you've only been here 600, 700 days, but here I'm showing you what it means. Um, and so me being able to be human in front of them and fallible is part of it. Mm-hmm. A- and the other related piece to me is, you know, we talk endlessly, or we have in my 30-whatever years and before I came along, about process versus product. And so, you know, what I heard you saying earlier, uh, what that triggered for me is a respect for the human beings in our profession and their process. Um, That woman you were talking about doesn't have to be perfect. She has her laundry list of tragedies. She doesn't, I think you said something like she asked, she wants to be the best she can be. And I would say any of us can only hope to be the best that we can be today. And we're always a work in process. Mm-hmm. And um, as long as we continue to be lifelong learners and doing that work, um, that laundry list will get shorter over time. And if at any given moment we're at least the best we can be for that day, then that's as much as I think we can expect from the folks in our field. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Um, and I love that you said 600 days that the children have had um, yeah because I think that's really eye-opening too and that's the other conversation that I've had with people is um, because I've certainly had days where I didn't feel like I could give everything and be authentic um, but the children still deserved the best that I could get give them and the, the, the others the other side of it is just what you said I have decades of experience in coping with these strong emotions that I feel or the the hardships that I'm facing outside of the classroom or the frustrations within the classroom. So of course I should be held to a higher standard than someone who's had right. 600 days of, of experience to develop that kind of, of coping. And I don't know that it's always, it always works that way. 
Well, and I guess sort of what relates to that, what that relates to for me is I also often talk to people about the difference between a babysitter and an early childhood professional. And I was a babysitter, so I mean no disrespect to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're direly, as you know, we're direly in need of worthier wages in our field. And there are a lot of things that we do if we're ever going to get there. Mm -hmm. And one of them you summed up perfectly, which is we have to hold ourselves to higher standards. That's that's part of what it means to be a professional. Mm-hmm. Yes. Far beyond any piece of paper that we have hanging on the wall, I think, in right. terms of defining ourselves as professionals. Um, is that how, how seriously and intentionally do we take our role and our decisions yes. in day-to-day actions? So as you think about this this quote and as you've thought about it through your over your career, are there... I guess I'm trying to, to, to think about how we can make this a little bit more concrete for people who are going in to work in a, in a classroom or they have a, a home with the family child care home or something. But so what, what ways can we show, can we show this power, I guess, practically? Like what, what ways do we set the climate? What ways do we choose to humanize rather than dehumanize in our daily work? Um, well, I'm not sure if this is going to specifically answer your question, mm-hmm. but um, what comes to mind is um, a term we use in the field uh, called um, externalizing the locus of control. And so you ever heard that phrase? Before? I have heard that phrase. I couldn't tell you what it syllables. means, but I'm waiting for you to do that. <laughs> okay. So a locus is uh, when I try to explain to people that word locus, it's like the, um, the um, crosshairs in a sniper's gun. It's where you put your focus, uh, where you aim. Um, And so what happens is um, we externalize it. We put it out there in the world and we say things like, oh, my kids last year were so great, but this year I have the worst group of kids. Or, oh, you know, my job would be so great if it weren't for those awful parents. (laughs) Um, Or um, I just can't believe it. I know more about early childhood than my boss does. And that's so frustrating. Um, And all of those things may be true. But you used a really important word earlier, which is intentionality. We need to be intentional. And in order to be intentional, we start by being reflective. Uh-huh. Reflecting on what we do so that we can make intentional choices. And so anytime we work with young children, uh, we need to reflect. And that fre- reflection has to start within. You have to internalize the locus of control. And you start your process by saying, So what might I have been responsible for that created those behaviors in those children or those parents or my coworker or my boss? How did I set up the environment? How did I set up the daily schedule? What materials did I put out? Um, What was I responsible for? And once I've gone through that process, if I can say, no, I, I did everything to the best of my abilities at my level of knowledge. Okay, now maybe there is some concerns with that child and and maybe there is something going on with that child. But a lot of people in our field externalize it. They start with the kid and say, no, there's something wrong with that kid. And that's why those problems are occurring. Mm-hmm. And they don't start by saying, okay, wait a minute. What, like holding myself to a higher standard, like you said, and starting by saying, okay, what are the things I was responsible for before I put it off on somebody else? Mm-hmm. Let me start here and, and think about that for a minute. Yeah, and, I, and that's a really... 
um, like, like just that one question can make such a difference. What was I responsible yeah. for? Um, and I haven't phrased it quite that way, but, but that's, I, I, so I think we are, we often say we give lip service to that idea, right? Like we'll be a reflective right. teacher or, um, consider your environment. But if we just, if we rephrase that into that one compact little question, what was I responsible for? Then that is a much easier starting place for the kind of specific reflection. Well, and, and that's kind of the brilliance of this quote for me, because you you see other human beings' behaviors out there in the world. Uh -huh. And, you know, I can hold a grown-up responsible for their behavior. Um, but a child, like we said, who's been here for 700, 800 days on the planet, um, they're still, they're moldable Play-Doh. Um, and I'm responsible first mm -hmm. for their behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um and most people, that's where they, uh, that's the ball they drop. Yeah. Um, this child hit someone else. He's responsible for his hitting, and so he's going to go in a timeout. Um, but if I start with, no, he's still learning how to be a human being. What am I responsible for in how I'm teaching him that? Mm -hmm. Maybe there's something there that I need to work on before I just jump to blaming him for his own behavior. Mm-hmm. And you said something earlier when you talked about being product oriented as process oriented that I think kind of right. fits in here too. Because when I read the quote, I get kind of two images in my mind. And one is this very um, controlled teacher like discount right. school supply catalog kind of classroom. <laughs> um, and, you know, I love discount school supply, but that yes, image of the classroom, <laughs> I, I buy from yeah. them all the time. But, right. but but that image of the classroom is on one side of things. And then <clears throat> kind of the more authentic, we're living our lives together in this space um, on the other end of the of the spectrum there, um, which could still happen in a nice classroom. <laughs> but sure. but sure. for the purpose of this conversation, what I feel like is that the 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 practices that I feel like are dehumanizing or the climates that I feel like are um, less optimal for children to be part of are, right. are the ones where there, there's a product in mind, this idea of what teaching looks like and this idea of what a preschool classroom should look like and the checklists that we're trying to meet um, instead of what you're describing, the process of living together and learning to be humans and my role in managing my own humanity while I'm trying to help young children <laughs> um, navigate their brand humanity. Um, so, so I think too, that idea of process versus product is helpful in this conversation um, as, yes. as we're examining the power we have over our, um, over young children's days and lives and by extension, well, their uh, families. I mean, it's a big power absolutely. that we have. Yes. Well, and although many of us, you know, have an understanding that, the, you know, this whole process piece, um, we have an understanding of it because we understand child development um, and, and um, you know, that human beings, young human beings, all of us, but young human beings develop in stages mm -hmm. and one stage isn't any better or worse than another. It's just development. Um, a two-year-old isn't a three-year-old. Some of us understand that. But we forget that um, our professional development uh, is is a metaphor or a corollary for that too mm -hmm. and that we're also in our own process and that part of our professional development in this field anyway you don't need a lawyer or an accountant but in this field um 
it's our personal development is part of our professional development and we have to um you know celebrate wherever we're at in our process mm-hmm. yeah um so I'm, i have to stick a plug in for the for uh at this point in the conversation for tamar jacobson's book um i mean her most recent one is wonderful but what's the what's the first one don't get so upset does that sound right mm-hmm. and it yes. she, she really walks um people through that process of self-awareness and understanding where you are and what your work needs to be and how that can impact the children that we're working with. So I just have to throw that out there at this point in the conversation. Yes. Yes. Good. Well, the other thing you said earlier mentioned something about um, reflecting on our, or thinking about our teaching. You said something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, and that's great. And I think that, um, one of the places that we have a blind spot for in our field is that we think about it as being about our teaching rather than being about the children's learning. Oh, and yeah. so rather than reflecting on my teaching, mm-hmm. um, it might, we might be better served to, because we are in a position of service, um, put our thinking towards the children's experience and their learning. Mm -hmm. And that's hard for a lot of us. Yes. Especially the young people, for example, in my, or, or back when I was in Ferguson, uh, my students were um, 50, 60, 70 years old. So, you know, not empirically young, but either way, (laughs) um, we try to think back on our earliest teachers and most of us can't remember our early childhood teachers. Right. And the earliest model we have is maybe a first grade or kindergarten teacher. Mm -hmm. And that, they're wonderful, but that's a completely different animal, a completely different um, apple to the orange of early childhood teaching. And right. so they go and they apply their those memories to being a teacher of young children, and they inevitably fall yeah. or fail because it's not about teaching young children. It's about facilitating their learning, their discovery, their exploration, taking that leap of faith that they're going to figure things out on their own. I just... I, you know, I always compare when, when I think about teaching and learning, uh, uh, for me, um, the best metaphor is hosting the best party, um, you ever could. I think myself as a host, my job is to see if my party guests, my little two year olds, um, have everything they need are getting their needs met are having a good time. Um, I'm not there to get my needs met, I'm there to host a party every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very different than, and then I take a leap of faith that they'll learn their colors and letters and numbers and shapes if I'm there to facilitate and weave it in. Uh-huh. And that's really different than someone who thinks their job is to be a teacher right. and hold up flashcards and make sure they can memorize things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's... when they think back to their first grade teacher, that's, a, that's their concept of teacher. Right. There's an article that I go back to a lot, and it's it's at least 20 years old, and it was published in Young Children, and it's something like teacher memory, teacher memories help or hindrance, and it's it's essentially just what you were describing, um, looking at a group of early childhood teachers who had been trained on developmentally appropriate practice and had gotten right. that information, but their practice reflected their own memories of being in school. Um, which are elementary school usually, um, rather than what they had learned in their teacher prep. So, so, so that's another area where aware, self-awareness and, and a willingness to be reflective becomes important. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Because 
and and that's all very well intentioned. We come into it because we want to teach sure. and help children, and and this is the image we have of it, and we need to work on ways to fight through that and get to the the human relationships and the party that you're describing. Well, then also, in addition to what you just said, what's true is that a lot of us, you know, um, we make so little money in this field. Yes. And um, we need every penny we can get to put food on the table and feed our children. We're so afraid we're going to lose our jobs. Mm -hmm. And our bosses, who often understand this, what we just talked about, less than we do, we we do what we're told we're supposed to do. Um, and they say, no, you need, the parents need to see learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to do these things. And then they, you know, rather than setting out to educate my boss, um, I just go do that. And, and then that becomes my new norm mm-hmm. because my boss said to do it, or that's how we've interpreted my state stand, early learning standards. There's a lot of pressure mm-hmm. to you know, part of it, yes, is our own memory of being teachers, but there's also a lot of external pressure to be that kind of a teacher inappropriately in early childhood mm-hmm. from outside sources. Yeah. Well, I would say that that pressure, uh, whether it's coming from an administrator or from a parent, also maybe comes from their memories of school sure. and their imaginings of what school should look like. And so right. it's... It's sort of an uphill battle. And I would also say if you really do feel like you're stuck in that kind of a situation, you can still um, decide whether to do that in a way that's humanizing or dehumanizing to to set the climate and the weather within that framework that you feel like you're stuck in by by your own interactions and your own expectations for children and um, the practices you implement within that framework. Yes, kind of taking it full circle back to what we said in the beginning. You don't have to be the best. Uh-huh. Uh, you just have to do the best you can in the place you are on the day you're in. Uh-huh. Uh, and there are some places that the best is far from um, what's bad for children. Mm-hmm. But within that, you can make it as humanizing and as appropriate as you can. As you can, yeah. But still yeah. fight. <laughs> Yeah, still you know, when I started <laughs> in this field, started because I was a babysitter and a and a camp counselor and all that, and I loved little kids. Me too. But no, yeah, <laughs> most of us did, right? Yeah. yeah. But uh, no one ever told me that out of you know, so out of that love for kids, I want the best for them, mm-hmm. and no one ever told me I had to figure it out out on my own early on that if I was going to deliver the best for them, um, I had to also educate the parents and um, my administrators. Mm-hmm. And I had to just take that on. Yeah. Um, you learn everything in your classes about how to teach or facilitate children's learning. But if you really want to make a difference, you almost have to put more energy to the context they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. The grown-ups, the parents, the administrators, and the public policy that informs all of it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> well, that shouldn't be so hard. <laughs> <laughs> And then somewhere in there, you have to play with Play-Doh and get in the mud right. and sing songs. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Actually, that sounds pretty amazing. That's, that's I guess, I'm in the right spot then, if that's what I should be doing. Me um, too. We are kindred spirits, my dear, and it's yay. lovely to speak with you. Oh, it was fun. Although we didn't swear much again. We'll just have to keep recording until we get the swearing Shit. in. Shit. Oh, there you go. I just had to say that. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, it's been <laughs> fucking wonderful to talk to you today. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. And thanks you too, everybody Heather. for listening to another episode. We'll see you again next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.